This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. The G7 summit is designed to allow the seven largest economies on the planet the opportunity to get together and discuss various issues at one uh, at uh, at one of them might have any one of them might have. The most recent meeting was highlighted by continued back and forth between President Trump, some of his advisors, and Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. In discussing new tariffs against Canada by the U.S., Trudeau said that his uh, country would have retaliatory tariffs in place by July 1st. That news drew sharp criticism from uh, people within the administration. Joining us to discuss this and many other issues from the G7, we are joined by Mauro Guillen here in studio, Professor of International Management at the Wharton School, as well as Director of the Water Institute. Also joining us on the phone, Olivier Chatan, Associate Professor of Strategy and Business Policy at HEC Paris, who is also, by the way, a Senior Fellow at the Mac Institute for Innovation Management here at the Wharton School. And we're also joined uh, on the phone by uh, John Curtin, who is Director of the G7 Research Group. He's co-director of the G20 Research Group and also a research associate at the University of Toronto School of Global Affairs. Morrow, great seeing you as always. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Olivier, John, great to have you with us today. Uh, well, Hello. good to be with you. I hear from a beautiful uh, Quebec City, uh, where the media center for this summit was. It was, John, and and obviously, uh, you know, the the last forty eight hours were quite lively up there, to say the least. Maybe even more so, the last twelve hours or so were very lively up there. Okay. Yes, um, good to be the uh, center of attention uh, globally uh, for uh, at least a, a few days. And um, Donald Trump, of course. Uh, gave us an afterlife uh, with his uh, five-minute uh, outburst of uh, two tweets uh, as he was flying to Singapore for another uh, very historic summit, uh, that with uh, the North Korean leader to try and uh, end uh, the nuclear weapons uh, in his country there. Out, outside uh, of that, let's put that to a side for a second, John. Tell us about, the, I mean, we know that obviously the G7 is a very important meeting when you're talking about so many different uh, different leaders. But in terms of this meeting, take us through the importance of this particular one with all of the kind of the dynamics we have globally going on right now. Uh, well, uh, this summit uh, very much focused on um, a broad range of uh, burning issues across the uh, spheres of economic and finance, social policy, ecological sustainability, uh, peace and security, uh, too, uh, including North Korea, Iran, and uh, other ones. And in confronting uh, them, uh, it didn't shy away uh, from uh, putting the toughest issues front and center, and even, of course, reacting uh, at the last moment uh, to the new ones that popped up. the prospect of another global financial crisis, uh, Argentina having gone down, uh, Turkey uh, looking like it would uh, follow. Uh, then last week, of course, it, it was Italy uh, that um, burst on um, the uh, yellow light uh, flashing um, screen uh, again with transatlantic uh, contagion into the New York stock market and bank stocks um, uh, almost uh, instantly. Um, so the summit had to uh, deal with uh, that one and did show us uh, in the communique uh, that they were uh, worried and uh, watching, uh, so hadn't forgotten um, that one. But uh, it also went on the uh, offense with, um, I think, something that um, is vitally important but hadn't gone prime time before. That was gender equality, uh, women's economic uh, empowerment. 
So, if you will, the uh, Me Too movement had gone uh, prime time uh, globally uh, at and through uh, this G7 summit. How much is really done with the global leaders and how much is done with uh, the, the finance ministers? Because that meeting usually takes place a couple of days in, in advance of, of the leaders actually coming in for the meetings which occurred this past weekend. Uh, that's right. Uh, and uh, this one took place uh, about a week before uh, in Whistler, British Columbia, uh, a joint meeting, um, a Canadian innovation. So finance ministers first, then finance and development ministers together, uh, then development ministers uh, alone. Uh, the finance ministers um, first and alone, that one did get hijacked, uh, bought the um, steel uh, and aluminum terrorists. Yeah. Uh, that uh, Donald Trump had just slapped on uh, Canada, Japan, uh, the European Union. But in particular, um, after a one-month exemption uh, for Canada and the European Union, that expired uh, midnight, um, May 31st. Um, so uh, the next day, uh, when the finance ministers sat down uh, for their meeting, uh, boy, uh, Secretary Mnuchin uh, got a real earful from um, all of his uh, G7 finance ministerial uh, colleagues. So uh, not much uh, other than uh, that uh, took place uh, at that one. Secretary Mnuchin handled it well. Um, not only did he come, he listened. Uh, he uh, you know, was a political uh, punching bag and basically said, look, uh, I hear you, I understand, but I'm the wrong guy um, to right. take that message to. I talked to the president himself or maybe one or two people um, around them uh, in the White House. Well, uh, Morrow, obviously the, the issues surrounding trade are, are very important uh, for all of these entities that, that are involved in this meeting. And obviously the path that is is being taken by the White House is something that is very much non-traditional uh, for for what we have seen in, pa- in in past administrations. You're being very polite. Uh, well, I call trying, you non-traditional. Trying to be, trying to be very, yes. di- uh, very diplomatic. Look, I mean, G7 meetings uh, are opportunities uh, for countries that uh, are supposed to be allies uh, to talk about issues, uh, to uh, you know, get to know each other better. You know, the leaders attending them. Uh, these are opportunities for. Uh, you know, the United States, in other words, uh, to, um, uh, you know, bring up whatever concerns it has uh, about uh, the global economy, about its relationships with different parts of the world. Uh, but to use this uh, this meeting, this gathering, by the way, hosted by the Canadians, yeah, yeah. Uh, to start a, uh, a fight, uh, I think is certainly unprecedented. Yeah. And I don't know exactly, you know, what problem uh, it helps uh, overcome. Uh, so we can also talk about that. But I think to use these kinds of summits, which are rare, I mean, uh, you know, seven leaders uh, of the uh, most important uh, among the most important economies in the world don't don't get to meet that frequently. Yeah. Uh, so to blow it up in that way, uh, to forego the opportunity to sit down and have a conversation and chat and uh, and discuss the issues, I think is a it's a it's a pity. It really is a pity. Well, and to a degree, it really even started before President Trump got there with the comments that he made about wanting to have Russia come back into the group and make it the G eight again. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, that's a uh, that's a separate matter, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, I am not uh, you know saying that it wouldn't make sense uh, to bring Russia back in. If you remember, the uh, we went from the G five to the G seven to the yeah. G eight, back to the G seven, then the G twenty just before the crisis. Because, of course, uh, these seven countries, uh, Europe, the United States, and uh, and Japan, no longer represent uh, 
uh, half of the, not even half of the global economy yeah. anymore. Yeah. Uh, so there was a, an issue about that as well. But uh, regardless of how representative the G7 is, right? And again, I mean, you could have another meeting with Russia. That's uh, one thing doesn't uh, preclude the other. Yeah. Uh, the, what I think is is a is a is a waste uh, is to uh, not take advantage of the opportunity. You have uh, six other global leaders uh, there sitting with you at the table. Why not use that opportunity to have yeah. a conversation about key issues, to f- try to find common ground, to try to think about where the world is going? Also to raise whatever concerns the United States has about the behavior of those other countries. That's fine. But not to turn it into a, uh, you know, an opportunity to uh, chastise our allies. A right? backroom brawl and, uh, and to, uh, yeah, and to uh, essentially... Uh, you know, convey to them uh, that we are a loose cannon. Uh, you know, the last thing that the world needs right now is for the United States to be perceived as a loose cannon. And yeah. I think that's the, the signal that we're sending to the rest of the world. Olivier, what's, what was your reaction to, to all of this over the weekend? Well, I think my, my reaction is that uh, now that President Trump has had uh, yet more turnover in his team at the White House, we, we have Trump by himself. And uh, I, I think of the conclusion that uh, the civil G6 will take away from that summit, besides the, the, I mean, the details and besides all the lost opportunities, is that at the end of the day, uh, it's a very serious situation because the U.S. is no longer a partner you can actually talk to. Uh, you have a president who is not even bound by his own world. He agrees to, to endorse a communique, and then 12 hours later, he disendorses it. So that's making things very, very difficult for the rest of the other countries. And I think they're going to steal themselves for, for a fight. And to be, to be very honest, I think the situation is really serious. I think that uh, the level of the, the quality of relationship with your allies is at its lowest since the invasion of Iraq. I, I find it interesting because, um, uh, Olivier, in the last few months, it has appeared, at least, that, that President Trump and, and President Macron of France had some sort of working relationship. But it even seems like the two of them uh, had some ruffled feathers uh, with, the, with these meetings over the weekend. Yes, I, I think the, Macron and, and also Trudeau, in their way, they tried to engage with, uh, with Trump. And they realized that, okay, we, we have someone who's not sharing our values, uh, who clearly doesn't feel that he has to respect the commitments made by his predecessors, but we try to earnestly discuss the issues with him. And, and I think what the recent episode with the, the G8 summit revealed is that it's not even that, it's that President Trump is interested in making headlines for his own personal, I say, mostly interior uh, political issues, and it has nothing to do with the issues. But what, what the summit shows is that, to some extent, even the trade policy issues is largely pretextual. Uh, there's no, there's no there there. And so, the question is how is these countries are, how are they going to, to to react to that? And I'm afraid that's just going to lead to more escalations. Because they also have voters to, to to respond to, and they are not going to be, to be pushed over. This is not something that they can do politically. And so given that, I just see more and more escalation. And it also comes more at a time where NAFTA is still kind of up in the air, whether we're going to see a, you know, a new agreement come forward. And obviously a lot of people are, are wondering at this point where 
this relationship between the United States and Canada and Mexico is going to be headed in the years to come. Yes, and uh, one could uh, obviously interpret uh, Trump's behavior at the G7 meeting as essentially, uh, you know, trying to uh, bully the uh, the Canadians, right? Yeah. Uh, and signal to them that, uh, you know, he's going to be very tough with that, uh, you know, renegotiation of uh, of NAFTA. Uh, but again, not the, uh, the appropriate uh, forum in which uh, to do that, uh, because you had uh, five other leaders from Europe yeah. and Japan uh, present. Again, it's a lost opportunity. I think, uh, you know, uh, the more people uh, and leaders talk to one another, the better in the world. Uh, the more finance ministers, development ministers, other uh, officials attending these meetings have a chance of uh, essentially contrasting their views and uh, sharing experiences and so on and so forth, the better. Uh, this is a missed opportunity, and we won't have another one until a few months from now. Uh, that's assuming that uh, the other leaders agree to uh, yeah. to another G7 summit. I, I guess, John, the, the question is, what has been the reaction up there in Canada uh, to all of this over over the last few days? And and you know, is the perception of, of the U.S. trying to bully Canada one that is, that is being viewed up there uh, north of the border? Um, and um, in the mass public and a number of political leaders say, sure, um, you're backing the hometown hero, uh, Justin Trudeau. Uh, but, of course, Canadians uh, didn't like or trust uh, Donald Trump uh, coming into it. Uh, but if you look at actually our uh, governors, uh, particularly those at uh, the summit, it has been, um, shall I say, uh, appropriately a very uh, relaxed in part because I think we all have to distinguish uh, what happened at and in the summit and then what happened um, either before or afterward uh, with Donald Trump uh, and his tweets. Uh, the discussions uh, at the uh, summit were um, very collegial, uh, very uh, civilized, um, even on um, the trade um, session, which was thought to be the one where there'd be a big blow-up some people even feared that would infect all the other areas where they had already uh, agreed. Um, but even the trade session uh, wasn't. And uh, I remember Donald Trump um, a briefing. Uh, he uh, said, how are you getting along uh, with the other leaders was the yeah. question. He said 10 out of 10, uh, obviously uh, remembering the movie uh, with uh, Bo Derek. And then he said, I got along terrifically with Angela. Emmanuel and Justin. Really interesting that he put Angela Merkel first because she had been his um, sort of target uh, before with all her uh, Mercedes-Benz, uh, you know, driving down um, Fifth Avenue, uh, which Donald Trump um, saw, I guess, and uh, disliked. It was only uh, after the president left, after a long, very hard um, day where he had worked far more continuously and longer than he typically does. And uh, then as the evening uh, wore on, um, well, um, he got tired, um, grumpy. And uh, we've seen this before. Uh, he reached um, for his uh, Twitter and fired out uh, a couple of um, nasty tweets. If you look at the substance uh, of them, uh, he really wasn't um, – he didn't mention um, NAFTA. Uh, the biggest uh, being his bonnet seemed to be dairy, uh, one part of Canada's yep. um, supply management policy, uh, which is a dumb uh, North Korean-like, uh, purely protectionist uh, foreign policy. But if he was um, calculating things um, politically, probably what he had in mind uh, were a few uh, politically uh, important um, dairy farmers uh, in uh, Wisconsin, right, Yeah, who would do well if uh, that got changed. And uh, Wisconsin is one of the swing states, so the midterms are coming up. And he's never quite sure uh, where uh, Paul Ryan is going to come down on um, 
the trade and the tariffs uh, stuff. Well, and there's no, not much doubt, Moro, that, I mean, one of the things that President Trump has been really trying to do is, in terms of supporting the base, has been looking at the Midwest and looking at and the, the farm industry, the dairy industry, but also manufacturing. Those are the areas that he feels are the most important and, and in part, play into these discussions. Yes, but it cuts both ways. Because right, remember exactly. that Mexico yep. just announced yep. that in response to uh, U.S. tariffs, uh, they're going to be imposing their own tariffs on some agricultural uh, products uh, from the Midwest, precisely you know, targeting uh, those uh, states where the Republicans uh, yep. you know, have uh, more of a, uh, of a, of a base. Uh, so other countries also understand that game, you see. Uh, look, I mean, what I think is important to understand here is that uh, the United States is no longer, uh, we are no longer uh, the world's largest trading nation. China yep. is, yep. right? Yep. And uh, for country after country in the world now, China is quickly becoming their most important trading partner, uh, not the United States. Uh, so we're losing leverage. Uh, so it is, I think, uh, uh, from my point of view, uh, incredible that at a time when our leverage is actually declining, right, our potential uh, influence over trade matters is declining, that we're adopting such a, uh, you know, uh, uh, position uh, that is essentially predicated on the assumption that we continue to, to have uh, unlimited uh, influence and unlimited power. Uh, so I think uh, in the end, this will be uh, self-defeating, even a country like Mexico, right, which uh, yeah. it seems as if uh, many of the uh, folks in the White House look down onto, uh, can retaliate against the United States. And it can do so when it hurts. And that's exactly what they're doing. We should be avoiding, especially with our neighbors, yeah. uh, this type of uh, tit for tat. And uh, this time around, I'm afraid uh, that everybody ca- will be assuming that uh, it was the United States who started this fight. Uh, so uh, I think it is incumbent upon us now to bring it to an end as quickly as possible, because otherwise this can, as was mentioned by, by uh, uh, Olivier a moment ago, this, this can escalate into something that uh, nobody will be able to control. And, and obviously, Olivier, they're, they're, the, the role of Europe and the EU and the countries over there will could play a, a very important part in this whole process. Uh, John mentioned the the comment about Mercedes Benz's. Obviously, President Trump made the comment uh, to uh, Macron about uh, too many German vehicles being in the United States, and th- th- obviously that doesn't play well in Germany, but it probably doesn't play well across the European Union in general. Well, I, I think that if you look at another tough negotiation going on now, which is the Brexit negotiation, you you see that the. The, the British government has been incredibly unable to draw wedges uh, between countries from the, the rest of the EU, which was a bit surprising. Now, if you look at what's going to happen probably with uh, the negotiation of a trade or rather the, the fight of a trade with the U.S. is exactly what Mauro mentioned with respect to, to Mexico. Uh, everyone knows how the Electoral College works outside of the U.S. So there's going to be maybe potentially more targeted uh, tariffs to, to push where it hurts mm-hmm. in all those swing states, while uh, even though, you know, the, the U.S. or President Trump may want to, to put tariffs on Mercedes, uh, you know, to, to be honest, I don't think that the Germans are going to be, I mean, they're, they're not exactly fun with principles. Principles really matter. So this type of tactics, I think, can only backfire. Eight four four nine four two seven eight six six is the number. If you would like to join in, we're joined on the uh, phone by Olivier Chatan of uh, HEC Paris and the Wharton School. John Curtin, uh, who is director of the G Seven Research Group, also with the University of Toronto, and in studio with Mauro Guillen here of the Wharton School. Again, eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio one eleven or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney twenty one. 
you've mentioned in the past, Mara, about the obviously the impact that these seven countries have in terms of the global economy. My question is, I saw a couple of articles over the weekend that talked about the impact of some of this back and forth on trade and the impact not only it will have between the U.S. and Canada or the U.S. and Mexico, but also the filter down to other countries that this will potentially impact. The ones that want to do partnerships with some of these countries and the impact that they will feel from these tariffs, from from them being in place as well. I totally agree. I mean, one of the most dangerous things about uh, unilateral uh, trade uh, decisions, uh, such as, for example, imposing tariffs or other restrictions, is that you cannot control the second order or the third order effects. There's all sorts of indirect effects yeah. right, that take place. Uh, and, you know, companies and consumers, everybody starts making decisions based on the new situation. And yep. You cannot control that either, right? Yep. Yep. And uh, what I think is a disaster is the following. We all know here at the Wharton School that uh, what business wants is stability. Right. Sure. We've yeah. had a steady, I think, reduction of barriers to trade over the last uh, 30 or 40 years in the world. Uh, this represents a change, right? And it's only going to bring uncertainty. It's only going to bring chaos. It's only going to bring volatility. And that is inimical uh, to um, investment and to job creation. So I don't understand the logic here, right? Uh, the, 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 the policy by the United States, uh, trade policy, should be all about stability, all about uh, uh, you know, coming to agreements, uh, perhaps bilateral agreements with Canada or with Mexico if there yeah. are specific issues that need to be resolved, but not about introducing volatility or uncertainty into the, uh, into the global economy. And this is what, what, what exactly, I think, uh, current uh, U.S. Uh, you know, policy and uh, all of these announcements and the tweets by the president are accomplishing, which is to increase uncertainty and volatility. John, you agree? Oh, uh, very much so. Um, I would uh, make the uh, obvious basic economics point um, that trade liberalization um, is a strong cause of economic growth in the world as a whole um, if uh, the big players um, do it amongst themselves. And the reality is, um, in the recent um, years uh, and even months, our free trade is uh, rolling out uh, between uh, and within the big G7 countries. Um, The comprehensive progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership brought Canada uh, into full free trade uh, with Japan and a lot of other countries uh, over in uh, Asia. Uh, Canada got um, a bit before uh, it's a free trade agreement and deep integration economic agreement uh, with the European Union. It's got NAFTA and the Canada-US free trade agreement uh, with the United States. So Canada has full free trade with every one of its uh, G7 partners. Uh, the Europeans just did a deal uh, with Japan on that leg of the uh, triangle. And thank God uh, the United States is still connected to that full G7 um, emerging uh, free trade agreement through Canada uh, with NAFTA and CAFTA, as we call it. So uh, we just need uh, President Trump uh, to take a step uh, that is uh, worthy uh, of his vision and aspirations uh, to do a deal with Europe. Uh, TTIP uh, is in play. Uh, And also to uh, rejoin a slightly modified um, TPP uh, with uh, the uh, Japanese, uh, and then we'll have full free trade uh, within the G7. Boy, uh, that is uh, a big burst for global trade liberalization and global uh, prosperity. And um, yes, there'll be a few populists um, still at work uh, in Europe. Uh, Italy uh, comes to mind of uh, late. But free trade uh, is rolling out uh, month by month. 
within the G7, uh, within uh, the world. It's only the United States that has so far uh, been slow to join and but, left out. Olivier, it, and it doesn't feel like, uh, at least right now, this administration you know, feels like they, were, they are comfortable with doing any kind of, of multilateral type of deal at this point. And I would imagine that would I- impact a variety of entities over in Europe right now. Well, you know, the European countries was that are part of the EU. They just legally cannot have a bilateral deal. So any deal has to be multilateral. Uh, and these deals take years to negotiate. And then you have this paradox whereby we, we yeah, I think we could go towards uh, lower barriers, and, but they're already uh, historically at a very low level. Uh, but that will take years. And even if everyone is, uh, you know, in good faith and wants to, to reach that goal, it's very hard to envision going anywhere near that when uh, one of the partners involved seems to be changing his mind uh, every other hour. And I think that's, this is also what reinforces the, the feeling that all these change of mind are also very pretextual. It's, there's something else on the issue at hand that, that, that's going on. And to some extent, it's also right herring. Great having you all with us today. Olivier, John, thank you for your time on the phone. Thank you both. Thank you. Mara, great seeing you again. Thank Thank you for having me. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.